Revelation Without Fear. I'm John Hamilton. This special podcast series takes you line by line, verse by verse, through the most mysterious book in the entire Bible. Revelation 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, you may recall in chapter 7, we first got introduced to 144,000 who were sealed by God in their foreheads. And we talked a little bit about the seal of God. And the angel was commanded not to hurt the earth until the 144,000 had been sealed. Now, some people debate whether this is the same 144,000 or a different 144,000. I think overwhelmingly most people think, okay, what are the odds? This is the same group of people that he's talking about. And, and I think that's likely. Most commentators come down into that. Um, uh, but now, unlike what happened earlier, we're actually told what the seal is. Before, we were just told they were sealed in their foreheads. Now we know what the seal is, the name of the Lord. The name of the Lamb and the Father are written on their foreheads. So last time we talked about the, the, the mark of the beast, right, on the, 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 the head and the forehead. But we learned that, that that's just a counterfeit. That's just for those who don't have the seal of the Lord. The Lord seals. And, and we talked extensively last time about the fact that there's many examples in Scripture about all of us being sealed. In fact, it, it, Paul says that you were sealed when you came into Christ. So this concept of sealing, the, the, those who have, been, who have been sealed by the Lord are not those who receive the mark of this beast. So this is kind of a, the mark of the beast is clearly a counterfeit. And he also says that they're standing on Mount Zion, this 144,000 seal. That's interesting. Um, Mount Zion was basically a capital hill in Jerusalem, if you will. That was where David had his palace. Mount Zion always speaks of the government, if you will, of, of the Lord, the, the, the authority, if you will, of the Lord. And it's also described in Scripture in multiple places as the place where the Messiah gathers his redeemed. Um, you'll find that in Psalm 48 and Isaiah 24 and Joel and Obadiah and other places. So there, there's, a, there's something about the, the Messiah's authority being established in, in Zion. So some commentators see this figuratively. They see this as um, this heavenly Zion, as in when Paul in Galatians 4 talks about, uh, if you're familiar with the story, how there, there's the, the heavenly... Uh, kingdom, which is grace, as opposed to Mount Sinai, which is the law. And so some people think that what we're talking about here is these guys are now in heavenly Zion, which means they died, probably because uh, they were defeated by the beast. And yet they didn't really get defeated because obviously they made it into heaven. Now there's others who see this literally as standing in Zion, which means that these uh, they're described as I use the expression that Hal Lindsey used, the 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams. If you remember, we were in there. Basically, these are 144,000 ethnically Jewish people who come to Christ to become great end-time evangelists. Now, that's probably the most popular position. Most of your modern uh, Bible teachers on, for prophecy, I'm talking about your John Hagees and your Tim LaHaye's and this kind of stuff, they believe this is a literally Jewish people who are... who who despite the beasts, despite the Antichrist's best efforts, endure and literally stand upon Mount Zion, basically uh, uh, as a symbol that they have overcome. 
one thing is for certain, whether it's literal, whether it's figurative, uh, whether they're in heaven, one thing for certain is that these guys have become victorious over the trials of the beast. So that's, that's you know, and for futurists, that means uh, the faithful who've made it through the great tribulation. They didn't fail. Um, for those who interpret this allegorically, the bottom line is this. We, we overcome Satan's worst, any way you look at it, okay? Verse 2, then I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was of harpists playing their harps. Now, when he talks about this, the roar of rushing waters, already that's been described as the voice of the Lord in Revelation 1, 15, and 4, 5. So, so what you've got here is we're, this is obviously the voice of the Lord, and he adds to it the sounds of the harps, or literally, I think you remember I told you that the, the word there is, is like more closer to a zither, which is actually like a guitar. See, guitar players are definitely going to be needed in heaven. This is my theory. Twice we see it. It's kind of literally instrumentally, it was a cross kind of between a harp and a guitar. We don't really have them today, what, they, what they're describing, but that's what John was literally seeing. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, we can speculate about who the 144,000 is, but one thing for sure is they have a song, and the song belongs to them. It's their story. It comes from their heart, and it's exclusive to them. You can't sing it if you haven't lived it. And that tells me a lot about our relationship with the Lord, doesn't it? You have a song. You have your story. You have your testimony. It's nobody else's. Nobody else's to tell. You know, I've, I've loved the times over the years that God has given our church a unique song of worship for now, a now word or a now song. And he's done it many, many times over the years. Um, most of the time, you guys don't even, we haven't even said, oh, this is a song we wrote or whatever. But there's been a number of times over the years of the worship team that God's given a specific song for a time and a season in this body. And those have been very precious to us because they're like, they're ours in a sense that this is what God is saying in our hearts. And it comes alive in a special way. In the same way, there's those times when you're alone, it doesn't matter whether you can sing or can't sing, you've got a song. And those can be some of the most powerful times of worship when you're just expressing just you and him because nobody else has your song. So this is an interesting picture here. And you see this reflected a lot, actually, in the book of Revelation. In chapter 5, you see the redeemed, we covered that before, who were singing a new song, worthy is the lamb to take the scroll and loose the seals, for he was slain, and he's redeemed us by his blood out of the nations, tongues, tribes, and people, and made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign with him upon the earth. And that's all of his redeemed, which means you and me singing that song. That's a song we get to sing. Guess what? The angels don't get to sing that song because they weren't the redeemed from among the earth. We were the ones. We are the ones. And so that's a song we participate in. You also find in chapter 7 the martyred saints, those saints who, 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 who lost their lives for the sake of the gospel, they also have a song. Multiple times in Revelation you see a unique group singing out a unique song. So if we don't learn anything else out of it, we learn, you know what? you got a song. It's your story. It's your expression of worship to the Lord. It lives. It's not just something on a page. Each song reflects the heart and the moment, and it belongs to the singer and his relationship with God.
Verse 4. These are those who did not, talk about the 144,000 again, who are singing this song, these redeemed. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as the first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, some interesting characteristics of these 144,000 end-time believers are described. Very interesting characteristics. First of all, they're morally pure. These are those that did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. Now, you might imagine there's a lot of speculation on exactly what that means. <laughs> Some suggested that, have suggested that only unmarried men who were celibate for life would qualify for the 144,000. Um, and, and, you know, there's an interesting, you know, like we're out... Um, it's true that Paul, in some occasions, recommended celibacy for certain workers of God in difficult times and situations. Paul points out, look, it's good to be married. It's good to be single. There's a, there's, there's a, there's a certain aspect of singleness that allows you to be completely and totally focused on the things of the Lord. But then Paul, of course, balances and says, but it's good for most people to marry, and it's better to marry than to burn, as he says. And so Paul gives some very specific things, but one of the things that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, 26, he said, it, it, in some cases, it's good to be, un, to be unmarried because of this present crisis. Now, keep in mind, in the early days of the church, it was a crisis. People were being persecuted. If you're a, for example, if you're somebody who's in a very high-risk situation and you're taking the gospel, it might be tougher on a family than on a single person. And so, in many respects, this is simply Paul being very practical in how we live our lives and how we approach the gospel. I don't know if you know this, but the concept of godparents, you know what godparents are, you know, you, you name a godparent. It used to be a much bigger deal than it, than it, it is. Do you know where it comes from? It actually comes from the early days of the Christian faith because Christians never knew when they might be taken in the early Roman era. And so they, they would name someone who would be designated to raise their children, another believer. Because it was, you know, there was a reasonable chance that you could be taken. And so that was the concept of having a godparent. And why it, if, it, if it happened by the hand of God that you were taken, then there was someone to take care of your children. So with that thought in mind, Paul suggests these sorts of things. Jesus, of course, talked about end times and, and, and pray that, you know, it, how terrible it will be for children and families in those days. So while Paul and the Bible overall recommend most Christians marry, it's true that the Bible also recommends at times in certain situations um, celibacy in, the, in times of persecution and hardship. So some might very well say it's easy to see that these 144,000 were literally called to celibacy for the kingdom's sake during the Great Tribulation. That is a easily justified position. But I will tell you this, more Bible commentators believe that their undefiled status really just speaks of their moral purity. It doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't married. It just meant that they were faithful, that they were morally pure um, in a general sense. They're basically, you can say it this way, these guys are straight arrows. They haven't defiled themselves in life. They're morally straight. It says that there was no lie found in their mouth. Wow. These are people of truth. It also says this, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Another attribute of these 144,000 is that they go where the Spirit says go. They're sold out. They're committed. They're under authority. 
They're not just saying, they're not going where they want to go. So the Lord has given some real specific characteristics of these guys. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and of the Lamb. Because as we learned earlier, these 144,000 come from the various tribes of Israel, so they were literally, um, and most likely, it's a possibility, of course, is symbolic, but most likely, they are literally Jewish people who've come to Christ during this uh, period of darkness, but they're called the first fruits because of, out of their impact, many, many, many more people come to Christ during this season. Um, Revelation 7-9 describes an innumerable company who were saved out of the great tribulation. And if you think about it, you know, sometimes people are open to the gospel when things are hard. <laughs> kind of makes sense that this 144,000 end-time evangelists could have a tremendous impact because of the hardships that are on the earth during this season of time. I think it's curious that the fact that the Lord specifically mentions the fact that these guys kept themselves morally pure, it obviously mattered to the Lord. They were, they, were, they were upright, straight arrows. There was no lies in their mouth. It, it's obvious to me that the Apostle John hasn't heard that God doesn't care about that stuff anymore. Sorry. <clears throat> you know, there are people who teach that that's irrelevant. But that's not New Testament teaching. It's just, it's just not. God, it does matter. You know, it's, we don't get into heaven based upon anything but the shed blood of Christ. But the Lord does recommend and commend and, and honor the morally pure. It's important. God cares about our moral fitness, and he cares about our honesty. Seems kind of crazy that you would even have to say that these days in the New Testament era, but, but honestly, there's so much wrong teaching on this that, it, you know, it bears, bears saying. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Here's another angel, and this angel preaches the gospel, but he also, along with preaching the gospel, announces that the time of judgment's come. He's not saying, Come to Jesus, he'll make your life better. He's saying, come to Jesus right now because judgment is upon us. And that's an interesting distinction to this message that's going forth in the earth. Um, you know, a, a lot of people, you might have been exposed to this in modern times, have seen this angel flying in the midst of, of heaven as being like modern technology and satellites. I remember there was a Christian uh, television network sometime back that launched and called their satellite Angel One. And, you know, I'm a guy who who, you know, sends out satellite programming to 200 radio stations every day. So, so I like this, but, but realistically, we don't know. That's, a, that's speculation. But what we do see is there's a, a message that's going out into the earth, and there's an angel pushing the message, whether the angel's literally preaching the message or the angel's moving men to preach the message. Certainly, we see this last day harvest coming forth. It's interesting how we interpret it this way, but every generation, as I've said a couple times, tends to interpret Revelation in light of their own time. Let me give you a couple of examples. Adam Clark, who was a commentator in the 18th century, wrote this. He said, But this vision is truly descriptive of the late institution called the British and Foreign Bible Society, whose subject it is to print and circulate the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments throughout the habitable world. So he looked at it and he said, 
wow, this is the fulfillment of this Bible society, which none of us have heard of. Okay, And then uh, 100 years earlier, John Trapp, who was a commentator, said it this way, this angel is held to be John Wycliffe, who wrote more than 200 volumes against the Pope. So, you know, it's sometimes, you know, if you're me, it's fun to study this stuff because you, you dig through history and you discover that the way this stuff got interpreted throughout history is many times very different than the way it's interpreted today. There's always been a tendency to see it in light of us in this moment. But I think it's more important that we look at what the message is. The message that the angel says, fear God and give him glory. This is the call in the final hour of mankind, that we walk in the fear of the Lord and that our lives give him glory. This is the, this, this is the end time message. You want to talk about end time revival, this is the end time revival message. Fear God and give him glory. You know, in Romans 1, we see what happens to men who don't give glory to God. You know, he, Paul, in his description, he's talking to this, of course, Roman, corrupt Roman culture, and he's describing it began when they knew God, but they did not honor him. They didn't fear him, and their hearts became darkened, and they began to descend into all these various levels of, you know, of, of uh, you know, life and debauchery, or as we otherwise know it, normal Hollywood lifestyle. Um, but these are things that he basically says that judgment is coming on the earth for. And one thing is for certain. Someday, everyone will give him glory. Philippians says, Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, things in heaven, things in the earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So part of the end time message is pulling everything together and saying, okay, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament, where an angel is attributed to preaching the gospel. Now, we know of occasions in which angels showed up to men with the gospel, and, uh, and on some occasions, Jesus has appeared to people in vision, visions. I have heard of people, in fact, there's people in our congregation who got saved because of a dream they had in which an angel of the Lord or a man appeared to them and told them about Jesus. It's very, very true in the Muslim world today. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but... Uh, the, the number one, actually, the number one reported, um, according to several sources, uh, cause of salvations in the Muslim world is Jesus actually appearing to somebody and revealing who he is. Because if we're afraid to get the job done, he will. Sorry, that was my commentary. But it's pretty remarkable when you think about it. It's pretty remarkable. Verse 8, a second angel followed, this is after the first angel preaching the gospel, and said, the second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now, this is the first mention in Revelation of something that gets ready to become a big theme, Babylon. Babylon. Babylon was the birthplace of idolatry in the earth. It was the birthplace of the occult. It is the birthplace of politics. It's really in the history of humanity, it's probably, you can't overstate the significance of Babylon. Now, prophetically, in Scripture, most of the time, Babylon 
well, sometimes it refers to a literal city. Sometimes it refers to a religious system. Sometimes it refers to political systems. But all of it has to do with the evil character of Babylon. If you think about it, Babylon was the first great civilization on earth where men said, we are going to accomplish this. And men rose up, and first of all, they began to worship other gods. They began to make images. That's where we first hear about that happening. And we, we begin to see that what's in man's heart and the pride of man to accomplish things in his name for his glory. And so in many senses, Babylon kind of represents, if I could just sum it up, the world system, the way the world does things, if you will. Now, um, I think for now, we'll talk more about this in Revelation 17. It's enough to see Babylon representing, if you will, mankind and all its rebellion against God, right? God's way of doing it and mankind's way of doing it. We'll get more on that a little later on. It said, he, which made the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. The Babylon of which Revelation speaks has influenced the whole world in a bad way. Her influence has led people to idolatry and to sexual immorality and into rebellion against God. Now, some believe that a literal great city of Babylon will be rebuilt. In fact, I had a, a number of years ago, I was friends with a pastor. I was on his board for this particular organization. And he absolutely believed that someday the city of Babylon would be rebuilt. And, um, I was invited. I did not take the invitation because I'm so glad I didn't, to go, to, to go visit go to Iraq and visit the ruins of Babylon, and we were, the invitation was from Saddam Hussein's government. So you can imagine why I'm really glad I didn't go, but, but didn't feel like the Lord wanted me to go, honestly. For a guy who's a history guy, you'd have thought I'd have done it, but I just I was a little kind of creeped out by it. And it was about maybe six months later the Gulf War broke out. <laughs> but uh, some people literally believe that Babylon will be rebuilt. Some people believe that this speaks of world systems. It's theoretical or, or, or allegorical. There are many people who believe that Babylon is the Catholic Church. There are many people who believe that the government of the Antichrist is the, is the Babylon to be spoken of. Some people, modern teachers, are teaching that the Islamic religion is the great Babylon. Listen, insert your theory here. But regardless, I think that more than anything, that when you think about what Babylon really was, the root in the history of humanity it's pretty clear that, that whatever Babylon is, it represents our rebellion and man's way of accomplishing and doing things. Um, I think that a lot of Americans might be surprised to know that other people, other Christians in a lot of the world believe that America is Babylon. Yeah, they do. Um, and, and if you think about it, I understand why Christians in other parts of the world think that way. Um, I've encountered it quite a bit. I mean, what's our number one export? Hollywood, Hollywood movies, pornography. You can't go into a marketplace in the developing world and not find American-produced pornography, movies. And so a, a lot of Christians in other parts of the world say, man, America's just spewing this stuff out. It's the great Babylon. I've heard it. Um, now, I think that Babylon speaks much more than that, but you can see you can see how, you know, people could, could think that way. And also, you can also realize how, how one leader, one city, one nation, one way of thinking could gain a lot of sway in the world. But, but the world system, what we're seeing here, any way you look at it, the world system is going to fall. 
And that's what we're seeing here in the fall of Babylon. The world's way, the world's authority, the world's system is getting ready to fall. Verse 9. And a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on their forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of the torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest or night for those who worship the beast and his image or anyone who receives the mark of his name. Now, for a class called Revelation Without Fear, that is a pretty stark proclamation. I'll say that, but really it is sobering. It is sobering what we see happen to those who reject the Lord. We saw in chapter 13 how the Antichrist gains control over the economic system of the world, both in figuratively and literally in a future Antichrist. No one can buy or sell without the mark imprinted on his hand or the forehead. And this angel speaks of the horrible consequences of those who accept it. But it also says something else. I mean, this is the kind of images. Nowadays, this is what people think this is. They think, okay, we're going to have, it's going to be a chip. It's going to be these, and it may be. But it's more than that. And here's why I, I, I say that. Notice what he just said. It's his worshipers who take it. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives. So it's more than just someone accidentally getting caught up in an economic system here. Okay, it, it, the, the heart and worship is involved. So it's not just an innocent thing. Okay, And then it says, you know, it's kind of, in the early days of the church, I told you guys the story of how, especially during the days of Domitian, that the, the, the Christians were tremendously persecuted because they would not offer a pinch of incense to an image of Caesar and worship him and then receive the, the libellus, the mark, the certificate that said they did so. And why then at the time they called that the mark of the beast and they believed very much that that was what John was talking about. But it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of thing that the Christians would have accidentally done. <laughs> They had to make a deliberate choice to worship the emperor publicly. Okay? I say this because sometimes people are fearful that they'll accidentally, oh, the mark of the beast could be, you know, I, boy, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to go online because that's the mark of the beast. You know, I, I've heard that stuff. And there's a lot of, like a lot of things that come with Bible prophecy in the book of Revelation. Sometimes people develop a fearful attitude towards it, which isn't biblical. Because as followers of Jesus Christ who receive the seal of the Lord and have received the seal of the Lord, we have nothing to fear in this situation, and we're not going to accidentally take the mark of the beast. It's not going to happen. Whether, whether you believe in a pre-trib rapture or post-trib rapture or whatever, which if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's fine too. It doesn't matter. You're going to not take that unless you choose to worship the beast. Okay. It says, they will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. This is an interesting terminology. The idea that God holds a cup of wrath, which those under judgment drink, is actually expressed 13 times in the Bible. Cup of his wrath, 13 times. This idea. Psalm 75 is an example, and Jeremiah 25 is an example. And the Greek word here for wrath is thymos, which means um, passionate anger. I mean, there's, there's passion associated with it. Um, that word is only used in the Greek New Testament 11 times, and 10 of them are in the book of Revelation. So 
there's, there's definitely, there's serious judgment coming, and there's serious literal wrath of the Lord being poured out. And then it says, He'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of the torment rises forever and ever. There's no rest for those who worship the beast. This passage teaches us some important truths about the subject we call hell. It shows that the suffering of hell is real torment. It actually involves pain. There's no ending of it, and it lasts forever. The word there, forever and ever, in the English, literally, you could translate it to the ages of the ages. One commentator said it this way, it is the strongest expression of eternity of which the Greek is capable. The strongest expression of eternity of which the Greek language is capable. So hell, despite some popular teaching, is not just torment on earth, it's not just living with the consequences of our actions. It's not just a season. Hell is forever. I've heard some modern teaching. In fact, I saw someone post just recently on a local religious leader, emphasis on the word religious, who said, you know, hell is simply wherever God is not. But actually, it's interesting. If you look what it says here, this is, just follow me here, and I know this is a little strange, but he said that those who are the worshipers of the beast, are tormented in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Have you ever thought of that? So in a real sense, God is not absent from the process. He is present in holy judgment. The presence of Jesus will be there in the presence of holy judgment, according to this passage, okay? Because God's holy justice... I mean, he would not be a God of grace if he was not also a God of justice. He, he could not be a God of mercy if there wasn't also the possibility of wrath. You know, they're not opposites in a sense. The same God who poured out his love for you, that he took the punishment for your sin. He gave his only begotten son for us who gave us that incredible mercy. There's a reason why he gave that mercy because of the consequences otherwise. Verse 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. You see, to me, that tells me that even this hard word about the reality of hell is meant to encourage patient endurance in us. We see the cost of failure, and we cling to the cross. He calls the saints who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Do you know that negative examples are for our good? Why in the Scripture are we treated with lots of tales of people's failures? I don't know about you, but I look at that and go, ooh, I don't want to do that. How many of you have seen failures in other people's lives, and you said, whoo, nope, lesson, don't want to do that. There's a reason why God's Word is so transparent about these things, and so we will learn. And even understanding what remains for those who are disobedient, as, as Peter said, what shall the end be of those who obey not the gospel of God? I mean, the, the question is, mm, it's not good. And there is something in us, fallen, rotten humans, even though we've been redeemed and even though we love Jesus, that there is a sobering reminder of what he saved us from, 
that causes us to love him even more, that causes us to press into him even more when we have an understanding of what he saved us from. It's like he told the parable Jesus did of the person who was forgiven a little and the person who was forgiven a lot, and he said, who loves more? Right? There's a corresponding action that happens here. Verse 13, then I heard a loud voice from heaven say, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor and their deeds will follow them. You know, these guys can take courage to know that they, they die, but they die to live and reign with God forever and ever. And I want you to notice this, their deeds follow them. Huh. You know, the only thing that follows us <laughs> is not our money. As the old expression goes, only one life too soon will pass, and only what's done for God will, for Christ will last. It's another subject for another time, but it's very clear from a New Testament perspective that their deeds follow them. What are your deeds? It's how you've responded to what Christ has called you to do. Your, your, your calling is not the same as everybody else's calling, but how you respond to what Christ has called you to do is, is the deeds that will follow you and the only thing that will follow you into eternity. Verse 14, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, this is clearly Jesus from the, from the imagery that we can see, and he's clearly coming in his role as the Lord of the harvest. Okay? And then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who is seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Now, most people see this harvesting simply as judgment, but, but in a sense you can really argue that this harvest also has a positive sense because it's, it's harvesting the souls, it's harvesting everything that has been planted. People have been sowing for a long time. And whatever a man sows and whatever mankind sows will also be reaped. And so that would be the good of man, the evil of man. Both are going to be reaped. The fruit of the kingdom, it's going to be reaped. All of these things are being reaped in this particular time, and they're all ready to be harvested, actually past ready. The word here, ripe, is a Greek word that actually means overripe in a sense. In other words, it seems like it's... Oh, I'm just having a better way to communicate it. The word there expressing overripe kind of gives us this feeling that when he comes, when he, when, when he harvests, to us it's going to feel like it's past time. It's past time for this to happen. It should already happen. But in God's mind, no, he's got the, the timing in this. But the, it, it seems to the observer that, that the, the, the harvest is, is overdue. Um, the first harvest seems to be a harvest of the earth. It's everything that's been sown by man. Um, I spoke earlier about the farmer and the wheat harvest, and that I believe that's what this is speaking of, that great harvesting of the earth. And Jesus told his disciples what that harvest meant when he told the story of the farmer who went out to sow and the enemy sowed the, the weeds in amidst. And Jesus explained it later to his disciples when his disciples pulled him aside, and he said this, Then he left the crowd and went into the house, and his disciples came and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, the one who sowed good seed 
is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good, good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. That's us. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the ages, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out the kingdom and everything that causes sin and does evil. And they'll throw them into the fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, Jesus told this story about the weed and the weeds in the middle of a series of parables about the kingdom of God. Immediately before he told this story, he told the story about the farmer who went out and sowed seed on some on good ground, some on hard ground, some on the rocky ground, and that he told this story, okay? And so it's interesting, you might want to know, I'll point this out, that the weeds that he describes here that grow up aren't just any weeds. They're a specific kind of, of wheat, of weed called darnel. How many of you know what that is? If you ever grew up around, around a certain agriculture, you might know what it is. Uh, darnel is a troublesome kind of rye grass. It's very, very common in Israel and Syria, and so they were real familiar with it. It's also been a pest in Europe, Asia, and even Americas. Uh, it grows anywhere you've got a production area of wheat. It looks very similar. Sometimes it's called false wheat because they look alike, a lot alike. Um, but you have to look closely to know the difference. And Darnell is not simply an irritation. It's actually dangerous. It's dangerous if it gets baked into bread because there's a fungus that grows on Darnell that causes a kind of intoxication. The discovery of this fungus is how they created LSD. LSD is actually created from this this fungus that grows on Darnell. And there are many occasions and stories in history where crops became infested with this fungus and it resulted in intoxication, sickness, and frankly, insanity. In 1927, there were 200 people in the town of England where this happened after some, um, some Darnell was baked into the grain. And um, uh, in uh, 1951, Many people in a French community started acting insane after this happened. There's many, many other, uh, other uh, examples of it in history. Uh, in, uh, in America, farmers actually refer to it as ARGT, annual ryegrass toxicity, and they take specific measures, they have to, to keep it out of, out of the wheat. So I think it's interesting because there's certain things that this produces. This, the wheat among the weeds produces sleepiness, Hypnotic episodes, drunkenness, trembling, inability to walk, hindered speech, dim-sightedness. Does that just speak prophetically to you guys? It does to me because Jesus is basically saying, hey, those that look like the sons of the kingdom, but the enemy has sowed them in the midst of it, movements, people, individuals, things, they create this kind of sickness in the kingdom. So in this parable of the wheat and the weeds, there's, there's some things that we can, we can see. The enemy is sowing weeds wherever God sows wheat. Every time there's a move of God, every revival in history, every move of God, there's never been a sovereign move of God where the enemy did not sow weeds among the wheat. The other thing that it tells me is that whenever the servants of the kingdom, which Jesus specifically says, the servants said, hey, the seed is bad. A lot of times when God's people see the weeds, they start going, oh, this is bad seed. They want to throw the whole revival out. 
They want to throw the whole move of God. You can see it throughout history over and over and over. When, when something begins to happen, they begin to go, oh, well, here's this bad stuff that's going on. I don't want to have anything to do with it. There's a lot of weird stuff going on here. So no movement can ever be judged by its weeds, by its most extreme elements. The other thing is, is the servant said, you want us to pull them up? And he said, no, if you start focusing on pulling up the weeds, you're going to pull up the wheat too. Now, to me, this also speaks of churches and movements and things of God because a lot of times we get distracted trying to fix the problems instead of going with the harvest. Very common. It's a distraction oftentimes to pull up the weeds. There are always going to be weeds among the wheat. And Jesus said, you know what? We're going to leave it for the Lord to throw it out in the end. And the harvest is coming. And this is, I believe, the harvest that's being spoken of here, this first harvest. And then there comes a second harvest in verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who was in charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because the grapes are ripe. Now, many have debated on why there are two harvests here. There was a first harvest and a second harvest. And um, the first seems to be harvesting all that has been sowed among the earth, sowed by man. The second is a harvest of God's wrath. The word ripe specifically refers to these grapes as being like, you know, bursting, the, the, the peak. And the angel swung his sickle on the earth, and he gathered the grapes, and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. This uh, picture here in Revelation 14 actually became the inspiration for a very well-known song. In uh, 1861, November 18th, a woman named Julia Ward Howe was staying in Washington, D.C. at the Willard Hotel, and in the middle of the night, she woke up hearing words. And, uh, well, let me read what she said. She said, I woke in the gray of the morning, and I said to myself, I must get up, and I must write these verses down, lest I fall asleep and forget them. So with sudden effort, I sprang from my bed. I found the stump of a pen, which I remembered to have used the day before, and I scrawled the verses without even looking at the paper, and she wrote these words. Mine eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Battle him of the republic. It's basically taken from that passage. Joel, the prophet, describes a very similar scene. If it seems strange... He says here, um, let the nations be roused, let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. By the way, that name means God judges. For there I will sit to judge the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the, is, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Again, this imagery of the harvest of grapes and, and, and a cup of wrath being poured out. It said here, and again, this is a... This is a, this is a graphic imagery, blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. And this probably could be described as blood spattering to the height of horse's bridles. So this, a lot of people believe this is a literal battle 
which happens in the valley. They described it as the Valley of Jehoshaphat, sometimes called the Valley of Armageddon. It'll be described later. We'll talk about it in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 19. It's, it's the description of about a 200-mile-long battle. But I want you to notice something about this, and we'll stop here tonight. When we talk about this wine press of God's anger and all of the, these kinds of things, um, which, again, is very, very, very stark imagery, but it says this. What, what, what started it? It said, another angel who had charge of the fire. What fire are they talking about? The fire of the altar. Okay, he describes this angel coming from the fire of the altar. If you remember what we talked about in Revelation 5 and Revelation 8, what was happening in the altar? Who remembers? The prayers of God's saints. The prayers of God's saints are what is coming up from the altar. And so the triggering point of this judgment and this wrath is actually mixed with the prayers of God's saints. I think that's significant because the angel who releases this great reaping of wrath is the very one who's attending the altar of the prayers of God. That tells me that, again, the prayers of God's saints have a pivotal part in the release of the judgment. I don't, I'm not saying we need to be praying for judgment. I mean, let's leave that in the Lord's hands. I'm not praying for judgment. But I'm saying that in the time and in the hour when the Lord sees fit to begin to reap what is being reaped in the earth, the prayers of God's people, I mean, we're not passive players. God's people are going to be actively involved. We're not sitting there as victims of this unfolding. No, we are actively engaged, purposeful, sealed by God's name and his presence, set apart, not caught up in the other, and purposefully praying in what is happening. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know that the saints of God are going to be right in the middle of it. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Revelation Without Fear. If you'd like any more information about any of my other teachings, you can find them at johnhamilton.com.